It's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, if you don't know who I am, uh, my name is Pastor Matt. I'm one of the elders here at Living Hope Church overseeing discipleship and youth. And I'm uh, very joyful to be able to continue our series, Making Disciples. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, please go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. It's the second gospel that was written uh, or that we have in the New Testament, Mark's account. Uh, if you, we have some blue Bibles in the back uh, tables back there. It's page 838, if you just rather know the page number. We've been going through a series uh, called Making Disciples, looking at how Jesus has went through his ministry and how he was gathering followers to himself. How did he take people who were lost out in the world, oftentimes in great darkness, and bring them to himself and train them up? And so this summer we're looking at really the first ten chapters of Mark's gospel and looking at that theme. We're going to see here today that uh, in our section that Jesus is having a transition in his ministry. At this time, he's still growing in a lot of popularity. Great crowds are coming to him. Uh, it is becoming a problem, though, because these great crowds are coming to him for all different reasons. Uh, and, uh, and he's also starting to face some opposition from religious leaders who are jealous at the time. So he's facing opposition even as he's facing popularity. And so one of the things Jesus is going to do, we'll see, is he moves from big crowd ministry to focusing in on a smaller group of men. He's going to appoint the 12 apostles and use them to be the vessels through which he is going to plant uh, and sustain his church. But we're also going to see this theme that you've probably picked up on today through uh, a lot of our singing, as well as this theme of Jesus versus the domain of darkness. I'm going to move this because it's going to bother me. Uh, Jesus versus the domain of darkness. Of darkness, We see that in our, the four stories we're going to look at today, three of them really deal with Jesus' kingdom, his message, coming up against Satan. Unclean spirits, the demonic, the darkness. We see how Jesus' ministry is coming up against that. Um, and so we, we see Jesus, he, when he goes to the crowds, he's giving them freedom from bondage to the demonic. That is a mark of his ministry of who he is. And then when he appoints his, his apostles, one of the things that he does for them is give them authority, not only to preach, but to cast out demons. We also see that part of the opposition he faces is religious leaders are actually going to accuse him of being in league with Satan. And as we'll see, Jesus has some strong words for them on that one. And so if you'll look with me, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, uh, and I'm just going to read each section as we talk about it. So start with me at verse 7. The Word of God says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and great crowds followed, from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed so many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make it known. Jesus is, at this point, already on the radar of a group of people known as the Pharisees, religious leaders, particularly in Jerusalem, uh, who are in charge of teaching the law, who are really the religious leaders of the day leading the Jewish people. Uh, oftentimes, because they, they were so respected, so highly esteemed, it went to their head. They became prideful. They saw someone like Jesus who was taking away their attention, and they became jealous. They saw Jesus as a Sabbath breaker, the Sabbath being the Lord's day uh, that he appointed. That was a day of rest. No work was to be done. This was actually something the Pharisees really honed in on. The Sabbath was very important to God and very important to, uh, to his people. And one of the things that the Pharisees did was make a whole lot of like extra laws or regulation around the Sabbath to make sure no one did absolutely any work. And it was very, very meticulous so we, read, we talked about last week when Jesus was uh, healing a man, giving him life. You know, he had a withered hand healing him. Well, they said, well, you can't do that. That's work. You can't do work on the Sabbath. Like totally missing the point. 
So already he, Jesus has drawn their ire. Uh, but he's also, so he's withdrawing from that area, from that center of, uh, of his opposition. He's going to really around the Sea of Galilee. During most of his ministry, particularly his early ministry, Jesus centered around going from town to town, Capernaum and uh, other places. Uh, really, that was the center of his ministry. And great crowds followed him from all over the place, like 60, 70 miles away from, from down south in Jerusalem, from across the Jordan, from the island of Tyre, like all these places. They are coming and they're seeking him because he has this great reputation. I mean, he's a celebrity. He's kind of a folk hero. There's, there's, there's a draw to him. Like nothing draws a crowd like a crowd. If you're ever like walking somewhere and you see like a crowd of people standing, part of you wants to say, well, well what's everybody doing there? And that you just want to go and see what's happening. A crowd draws a crowd. So a lot of people are coming to Jesus for a variety of reasons, many of them because they heard that he's a miracle worker, that he's healing people of diseases and all kinds of things. And for a lot of people, that, well, that's great hope. I'm going to go see what he can do. As Pastor Tim talked about a few weeks ago, Jesus really wasn't interested in just being popular. He wasn't trying to be an influencer in the sense we think of it today. He wasn't just trying to get clicks. You know what I'm talking about, right? He wasn't just trying to be popular and have the, the biggest number of, you know, foe followers. He was here to make disciples. There were people who were coming to him because they thought, well, maybe he can improve my life. You know, I've got this ailment. I've got this limp. I've got this skin disease. I've got this thing that is reducing the quality of my life. And I hear this guy might be able to do something about it. Jesus was offering something so much more. They were coming for maybe a better quality of life. Jesus is offering eternal life. So they weren't coming really with what Jesus was going for, and yet Jesus didn't turn them away. He didn't say, nope, you're here with wrong motives. No, he had com the Scriptures tell us Jesus had compassion on the crowds. Regardless of why they came to him, he, he wanted them to come so he could show them that there was something so much more, that he was so much more than they thought he might be. We see that even today, that there's a lot of reasons why people would enter into the doors of a church or be interested in Christianity, or maybe seek out to learn more about Jesus. For some people, they, they grow up in church, you know, from, from their earliest years, and maybe they, they separate from God for a while, they stop going after high school, and then years later, they just kind of want to get reconnected to their roots. And so they, they maybe begin seeking out religion or seeking out Christianity again. Some people who may not be necessarily a committed follower of Christ, but are curious again about the things of the Lord, uh, experience getting married and having kids, and maybe there was a long season of life where they weren't really walking with the Lord or very religious, but once they start having a family and start having kids, like they're, the way they start thinking about the world and, and life and priorities begins to shift, and hey, I, I, I kind of want my kids to know a bit about God and know about the Bible and, and begin to think differently. Some people uh, have a Christian spouse, and, uh, and they, their spouse begins coming to church, and they say, well, I'll, I'll go see what, what this is all about. Some people uh, come to hear the gospel or begin seeking the Lord because they come to a crisis point in their life, a health crisis, or uh, a death in the family, or someone's coming to terms with their own mortality, or a broken marriage, or, or a tragedy that afflicts them with a kid, or, or something else, and there's just this crying out for, I need help, something. God, if God is really there, let's find out. Maybe he can do something. For some people, they begin to seek the Lord because they're just feeling the world is becoming a darker and darker place, unmoored from reality, and they just want to go somewhere where people hold the traditional values that make more sense to them, or, or reflect their own uh, values. Maybe one of those describes you, the reason why you began seeking the Lord or a reason why you're even here today. And I, I think that Christ welcomes you. I'm glad that you're here. Even if you have lots of doubts or questions or you're just kind of curious, you're not really sure where you're at with the Lord, Jesus welcomes people to come and learn more. And maybe you're, you are hoping that you know, you'll see what Jesus has to say and you know, what Christianity has to offer and Yes, it's good, but I want you to know it's far better than you could possibly imagine. As I said earlier, the crowds were seeking a better life, and certainly Jesus says, I have come that you may have a life and have it in abundance, but not because he's offering great wealth 
or great prominence, or he's going to take away every problem or every hardship because you'll still face those, but rather he's offering, as we heard earlier, the greatest problem we all face, that we need forgiveness of sins. And Jesus says, I will give you not just a better life or a comfortable life, I will give you eternal life. So I'm glad, if that does describe you, that you're here today. So Jesus welcomes the crowds, and he does receive them, but only to a degree, right? Because at the same time, he he heals many people, but he knows that he can't necessarily build what he wants to do, make disciples, build a sustainable church with just a great crowd of people. And so even as he's welcoming them, he even has like kind of like an escape plan, like with disciples, like, hey, can you set aside a boat for me? Because they may actually like stampede me for healing, and I need to like make sure that we can can get away. Um, But we see that when Jesus is doing these great works, he's not doing it just because it's cool, just because it's like, hey, guys, check this out. It's not like a parlor trick or a magic trick. Jesus is showing that he has great power, that he's not a false teacher. That he's not a lunatic, that he's not a deceiver, that he genuinely has power to save and to heal. But when he, d- he does something specific, all the miracles that Jesus does demonstrates that he is sent from God and that he has power. Even his opponents recognize that. But when he casts out demons, when, when people who are afflicted by a demonic power, and yes, that is true, There is a demonic power in the world. There are uh, angels, but as we talked about a few weeks ago, there are also demons, unclean spirits that are at work. Um, There are some people who come to Jesus who are demonized, who are oppressed, who are feeling the effects of that uh, on their lives, and they are being controlled. They're being enslaved by them in some sense. They are living under the power of darkness. You know, that's something that maybe we don't acknowledge a lot or think about a lot or it seems so foreign to us in, in our area. Maybe it's because there we do have, Lord, Lord God be praised, you know, a lot of churches, a lot of light. But, but go talk to Jacques about what it's like in Haiti where, where um, something like voodoo is a lot more common. I mean, there are places where there is a lot more paganism, a lot of more idolatry um, of a different sort. Maybe there's some, some, of, that, some of that satanic, that demonic... Um, presence is a lot more pal- a lot more present a lot more felt and so when people are coming to Jesus um, these these demonized people are falling at his feet and it says these unclean spirits they can't help but in, in the presence of the king of eternity cry out you are the son of God however they're not doing it like joyfully they're doing it because they they are they are trembling in his presence They're also kind of trying to play spoiler because Jesus is not ready to reveal that information to the crowds. So Jesus makes sure that they are quiet. But we see right here, even right, that Jesus, when he comes, one of the marks that he is who he says he is, is he's driving out the devil. You know, when when God's people, Israel, the Old Testament, came into the land of Canaan, they were driving out the Canaanites. And in a similar way, when Jesus came into the world, He recognizes that he's driving out the prince of this world. He is usurping the devil's kingdom. He's coming in and saying, this is mine, and I'm taking it back. We're going to see that more as we go along. And so uh, this marks the end of Jesus' early Galilean ministry uh, when he had a lot of following of uh, many crowds, and now he's going to kind of move and shift to those whom he's going to build his church Uh, with a lasting foundation by appointing the apostles. So look with me at verses uh, 13 through 19. It says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boagenes, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus called these twelve men 
to be his apostles. And as I've mentioned, this is the turning point in Jesus' ministry, beginning the latter part of his ministry in Galilee. And now everything that Jesus is going to do, he's no longer doing just with a, a group of disciples that's kind of morphous and growing and shrinking at times. Now everything that he does is alongside and with these 12 men. He's here to, to teach and to train and to prepare them for ministry after his departure. These 12 men, even Judas, who it tells us here, was the one to betray him. Even he had a part in this. Jesus spread the gospel. He built his church, and after his ascension to heaven, he has continued on the foundation of the apostles. Now, I read years ago that the sign of a good leader is not how many followers he accumulates, but how many leaders he produces. Right? It's, it, there are a lot of people that can draw a crowd, right? thousands of people, and they can have their 15 minutes of fame, but it's really kind of short-lived. The people who have a lasting influence are those who raise up and produce leaders who go out, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing at this part in his ministry. And consider, had Jesus never done this, you know, maybe his ministry would have fizzled out or died after him. No, but those, but instead he called to build a lasting foundation of the church, which still stands today. But notice that he called those, I love this, I love how he says, he called those whom he desired. Jesus was choosing people based on his own good wisdom and pleasure, these 12. On what basis did he choose them? Well, it wasn't a meritocracy, it wasn't based on like, all right, Let's see who's the best speaker, who's the best with logistics, let's see who's the best orator, let's, you know, who's the best looking, let's just find, you know, let's find the most skilled people and, you know, the cream will rise to the top and we'll pick those people. Now, these men were fit, obviously, but at the same time, they were fishermen and maybe they weren't, we wouldn't think of the people we would hire for the job, yet Jesus made them fit. It wasn't their own merit that caused Christ to choose them. It wasn't based on seniority. Okay, okay, the the first 12 people that follow me, you get to be the 12 apostles. I mean, some of them were early on, certainly, you know, uh, uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, but others like Levi and we don't know when the others came about, were maybe later on in Jesus' ministry. They weren't first followers. It wasn't based on, a, on diversity, that I just want to have you know, a very diverse crowd. I mean, granted, they did have some diverse backgrounds, fishermen, tax collectors, a zealots, a political revolutionary, but he ended up picking 12 Jewish men. It wasn't based on just their level of influence in society. I'm going to pick the, the biggest, uh, most influential men who have a large network that we can draw from. If that was the case, he maybe would have chosen someone like Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus. He probably would have chosen some Pharisees who already had some built-in influence in the world, but he didn't do that. He chose people who really didn't have a lot of influence, largely. It wasn't based on their resources. Who was the wealthiest? Who could fund the ministry, right? You need backers, people who can fund everything. I mean, like once again, I, he chose people who were pretty poor. Even the one who may have been the most well-off, Levi, who was a tax collector, left his wealth in order to follow Jesus. It wasn't just voluntary. It wasn't just, all right, guys, I, I need 12 apostles. Here's the sign-up sheet, first, first come, first serve. Although the men were willing, they weren't cajoled into this. And it wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't some lottery system. It was, Jesus wasn't going... Any, many, miny, mo. It wasn't that either. I love this. Jesus called those whom he wanted, those whom he desired to be his 12. In Luke's account of chapter 6, it says that Jesus went up on the mountain to pray, and he prayed all night. He continued in prayer to God, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them the 12. So this was a decision bathed in prayer before the Father, and yet the choice was based on his sovereign and secret will. And that's really enough. Jesus is always wise in his decisions. He does, he does what he wants to do. He does it based on uh, his own sovereign secret will and his own good pleasure. And so we never need worry that it's based on something else so that God might make a wrong decision because it's based on something else. That God's going to make a wrong choice or he's going to regret it. Or that circumstances might change. Or will be unhappy with his decision. No, God makes a decision, 
It's based on the right thing, and so it's, it's firm. If you're in Christ, God chose you because He desires you to be with Him. And that's what we see, that there's three reasons why He chose them, these 12. Number one is to be with Him. That's the first thing. He wants 12 apostles. He's got lots of crowds. He's got some disciples, some, some deeper followers. He says, I want these 12 simply, first of all, if nothing else, simply to be with me. They'd be his, his chief disciples, his constant followers. They would learn by listening, observing, by following his example, by obeying his orders, by fulfilling the tasks he gave to them. Paul, the apostle Paul, by the way, also did this with Timothy. He says to Timothy, his protege, younger protege, in his, his second letter to him, chapter 3, he says, Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Paul reproduced his faith, his aim, his purpose, his ministry in Timothy. In the same way, Jesus did that first with these disciples who became apostles. He just wanted them to be with him. Jesus had a short amount of time really to do this. His, his ministry was somewhere around three years. You calculate that out, it's a little over a thousand days that he was here. And so he really had a, a short course of time, so it had to be more of an intensive. Some of you went to college, and you, you would have taken an intensive, which is where you take like a semester-long class, and you cram it into like two weeks. You have to get a lot, and your classes are long. It's an intensive. In some sense, that was what was going on here. But discipleship, to truly be a follower of Christ, takes time. It's not a short course of learning. It's not just checking in a little bit every now and then. Jesus was forming men, men of God. He was instilling in them convictions and teaching and a pattern of life. He was building them up and forming them from a rough resource into firm, godly men. And that takes time. So he just needed them to be with him day in and day out. And through the course of just walking with him, talking, eating with Jesus, observing his pattern of life, they would thereby become disciples who are worthy to be apostles. Jesus calls you to follow him as well. And the first thing that means, if you're, if you're a Christian, is that Jesus wants you, like the apostles, he just wants you to be with him so that he can form you into a godly man, into a godly woman. You too will become a disciple and a better, more effective, and joyful one as you spend more time with Jesus. As you spend more time listening to his word and spending time in prayer and spending time obeying him and, and throughout the day walking with him. And it takes time. It's actually more than just an education. It's walking with the Lord daily. Walking in the spirit, scripture calls it. So, prior, so I would encourage you to prioritize that time, daily time to read from God's word. To make it that, that thing that is, you, you do, and it, it's a priority, it's early in the day, I would encourage. I think there's uh, some benefit to that, to carve out some time for that, to hear from God, to let his word shape you, shape your thinking, shape your affections, your priorities, your heart, to, to draw you to repentance, to, to give you direction for the day, to give you wisdom for decision making, to give you truth to cast out the lies, because we have so many influences on our lives we need to be disciples of Christ, so constantly seek him and pray throughout the day. He called them first to be with him, and secondly, he sent them out to preach. That's what apostle means, to, to be a sent out one, as Jesus was sent by the Father with a message, so he is sending them out with the same message, generation to generation, laying the foundation of the church. And one of the things they would do is protect the gospel message so when Jesus ascended to heaven that it, there wouldn't be a whole bunch of different people just adding their own thoughts and changing it. The apostles said, no, this is the gospel of the kingdom. This is the truth. This is the message of Christ. This is the testimony. Jesus entrusted them with that. And they preserved the truth, not by hiding it, not by writing it down and keeping it locked in a box and it's super secret. No, but by broadcasting it, by preaching it. And all throughout church history, there's always people who have come back and said, with false teaching, trying to twist it, trying to change it, trying to alter it, trying to work around it. We go back to the words of the apostles. 
and say, no, this is the truth that Christ taught, the entrusted with his apostles, that we lean on and stand on even today. And thirdly, he gave them authority to cast out demons. The kingdom of darkness opposes the kingdom of light. And one of the signs that the kingdom of light has come is that the kingdom of darkness is driven out. It's being defeated and cast out. There were places that the apostles would go where demonic forces held sway, where Satan had a lot of strongholds, where there was a lot of darkness and addiction and abuse and sin. And when they come in, they're saying, hey, we have a, we have a good message, and to demonstrate that this is powerful, we're going to drive out the devil. And this deliverance ministry is a demonstration of authority that was especially given to the 12 apostles. Since even the demons must obey them, surely the people they were listening to should listen to what they have to say. Notice that this would have been an eye-catching display of power, but it's also useful and serves support. Jesus didn't just say, hey guys, I'm going to allow you when, you, when you, you stick up your fingers in the air, the fireworks will come out. It'll be cool, and it'll draw crowds, and they'll listen to you. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't just give him like a magic show to draw crowds. He said, I'm going to give you a message and power over demonic forces so you can heal people. So Jesus empowered them, power to drive out the kingdom of darkness, just like he was doing. The apostles are named Simon, Peter, James, and John were brothers, Andrew and Philip, uh, Bartholomew and Matthew, who's also called Levi, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, who in Luke and the book of Acts is, is probably called Judas, the son of James, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. And it's through those 12, namely really 11 after Judas uh, betrayed Jesus, it is through those 12 that Jesus' ministry continued after his ascension. And he only had about, like I said, three years to do this ministry. He was no longer going to be drawing the crowds. He was going to be investing in them. Because he knew his time was short. Honestly, if you think about it, our time on earth is short as well. And many of you want to have a lasting impact on the world. We begin thinking, especially as we get older, about the legacy we'll leave and the people that we'll touch. And we want to make a lasting impact for Christ. Hopefully, that's our desire and our design. And we can do that in lots of ways. Christ, we can honor Christ in all different kinds of ways. We can have a, you can honor him in your vocation, whatever it may be, as long as it is honorable. Your calling in your workplace, the world where you can be a light. And I praise God that you are a light in the world where you're working. You can reach out to your neighbors. God has planted you wherever you live, whether it's you know, in a heavily populated area or in the country. You have somewhere, in some distance, neighbors, people who are near to you, that God has placed you so you can be the light of Christ where you're at. Maybe if it's, you even have a greater uh, you know, uh, platform on social media or a networking presence where you can influence many more people. As God gives you opportunity, use whatever avenue you have to reach people with the gospel of Christ, to make much of the name of Jesus. But you really kind of have to make some, some decisions about how we do that, to be strategic, because our time is short. And oftentimes, if you want to have a broad impact on a lot of people, we have to realize that oftentimes that, that impact is going to be pretty small. You know, if, I mean, we can have impact by writing blogs, by, we can even have impact by tweeting things, we can have impact by lots of different ways, but, but that's really kind of a small, it's like you're a voice in people's ears and in their heart maybe. But deep influence in people's lives is often with very, very few. There's a few people in your life that you'll really have really shaping power in their lives. And I would recommend, honestly, that if you want to change the world for Christ and influence a generation for Christ, I'd recommend that, especially if you're young, you're young find a godly spouse, get married, have a good amount of kids, and start raising them to be Christians. Not that that's the only way that you make disciples. There are many other ways. But I, I just want to point out that is a really primary way that we learn to do it. And we can look past that sometimes, but God doesn't. One of the responsibilities that, that Christ calls us to is to train up your children in the knowledge and discipline of the Lord. That's where like a lot of our deepest discipleship, moms and dads, is going to happen. Not your only reach. 
But oftentimes that's where we start, and it takes, as you know, a long time. And it's probably the hardest discipleship you'll ever do. But I think even if, if you go beyond just the family and we go out, I think that oftentimes it is that small group of people, those individuals, those lives that you touch for a long period of time for Christ, that's the deepest impact that you often have. One of the things that we do in our youth group we have on Saturday nights, kind of our, our bigger, large group, middle school and high school, boys and girls, we have you know, uh, games and teaching. We're actually in this room, but it's, it doesn't look as nice, it doesn't smell as nice. Um, so we play basketball and dodgeball and all those other kind of things for the Lord. Um, but one of the things that we do is something called core groups, where we have adult leaders who get together with maybe three, four, five students, and they meet weekly, and they do four things. They spend time in the Word, they spend time in prayer, they have topical discussion, like talk about something that's going on that you need a safe group of people to talk about as you're growing up, and accountability. And I, and I can tell you, even, even like in youth pastoring, that's one of my favorite things that I do. I've been meeting with a group of guys for a number of years now, and just to see them grow in Christ is such a delight. I know my other core group leaders can say the same thing. Because we can have broad impact on a lot of people, but it's usually smaller than the deep impact we have on a few. And Jesus, by choosing the 12, is doing just that. We don't actually know a lot of the names of the people Jesus ministered to. We know Mary Magdalene and his mother Mary and a, a few others that he, you know, uh, that he, that he interacted with, but we certainly know every single name of the 12 apostles. So I'd encourage you, as you're trying to make an impact for the Lord, that we can follow Jesus' pattern and think about who are the one, two, three, four people, your children if you have any, and, and outside that you can make the biggest impact for Christ. Who is he calling you to invest deeply in? We move forward into our, our last section here, starting in verse 20 where we're going to see the opposition that Jesus is facing. So if you look with me in verse 20, it says, And then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may blunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. In verse 19, we know that the crowds, we see just very quickly that the crowds are continuing to gather near Jesus and, uh, and his family is trying to pull him away. They're, they're saying he's out of his mind. So we get to see that even among some of his family members, maybe his mom, probably not. She seems to be a faithful woman. Maybe some of his half-brothers or sisters or cousins or whatever it might be are, are getting a little uncomfortable with all these great crowds and Jesus' you know, ministry to them. So they're trying to pull him away. And this is a kind of opposition they're facing, that Jesus is facing. They don't fully understand his calling from the Father. But meanwhile, it's really the scribes who are doing the devil's work. They're coming down from Jerusalem, uh, and these are kind of like among the scribes who are teachers. They're the ones who interpret and teach the law to God's people that time. Uh, the ones from Jerusalem, they're like the bigwigs. They're the ones who have the highest authority, and the, the country scribes would really look up to the ones that come from Jerusalem. So the scribes from Jerusalem, they're coming down and they're having influence over people. They're trying to, to quash what Jesus is doing. Uh, but they cannot deny that Jesus is doing great works, that he's doing miracles. That's, that's something we should even consider. That even his enemies can't say, that never happened. Jesus didn't heal those people, he didn't cast out demons. Like the evidence is so abundantly clear. There are so many people it's happening to. There are so many eyewitnesses that even his enemies who would love and do lie about him 
can't even deny that Jesus is doing miracles. That should carry some weight with us even today. He has cast out demons, so they are trying to offer an explanation for it because they want to discredit him. If they could just say, it never happened, they would. But they can't say that. So here's what they come up with. The Jerusalem scribes offer this explanation. Jesus is actually in league with the devil. The tables have actually turned. It's all an illusion. Jesus is casting out demons but it's a show. Actually, the devil is voluntarily leaving and, and they're working together to deceive people. It's all a demonic show. That's what they say. So verse 23, Jesus calls them to himself. And I, I think that's interesting because they are slandering, they're bearing, bearing false witness, they are blaspheming against him and against God, and Jesus has to address it. I mean, Jesus was always, always at opposition. The, the gospel today, the Bible, will always have its opponents, always have people speaking against it. And there's lots of times you can just shrug it off. There's times you just say, you know what, we, we, we don't have time to answer every objection or deal with everything. But there are times when, you, when there are objections that you cannot ignore, that must be dealt with, that must be met, and shown for the foolishness that it is. In this way, Jesus does that. He recalls them to himself. He says, let's talk this out. And he's going to show them that their argument they're using against him is self-defeating and nonsensical. Scriptures tell us that Jesus responds with a parable, which means even as he's confronting them, Jesus is not now like rolling up his sleeves and trying to duke it out, okay? Even with them, there's an element of gentleness because he's going to speak with stories or illustrations to make a point. And these are, this is his point. That first of all, a kingdom divided against itself is fall, will fall. Jesus is casting out demons. He's casting out unclean spirits, which should demonstrate that he is toppling the domain of darkness. That he's actually fighting against it. Jesus' works are contrary to Satan. Satan now has less power and influence in the areas where Jesus has been. The devil does not voluntarily vacate areas of power. People don't typically do that, right? Satan is not an idiot. A nation with sense doesn't voluntarily surrender its land to another. Why would Satan cooperate with his own downfall? He would not do so. So clearly a force that is greater than Satan, because Satan's not voluntarily leaving, a force greater than Satan is at work here. It's the kingdom of God. Jesus is more powerful than Satan. Satan's reign is coming to an end. That should be abundantly obvious. And so he's saying if Satan was, was fighting against himself, he would be working towards his own demise. That's nonsensical. A kingdom that's divided against itself will fall. A house divided against itself, walking at, working at cross purposes with itself, can't stand. His second point, and I like this one a lot, he says, no one can enter, in verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he can plunder him. So if a robber was, wants to break in to your house tonight and steal all your goods, he's going to have to, first of all, tie you up and incapacitate you so that he can steal from your house. In this illustration, I'm going to be kind, you're the strong man, Okay. Now, I would, Jesus is not giving advice to home invaders, okay? He's not giving a strategy for, for theft here. But he's just making an illustration with this story, right? That if a, you're going to break into someone's house, especially if this is a, a strong person who could beat you up and incapacitate you. You've got to bind him up, and then you can go through your house and, and steal all the things that he wants without fear that he's going to be uh, stopped. And Jesus is actually saying, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I've broken into Satan's house, I'm by, I've bound him, I've shut him up, and I'm plundering his house right now. I'm going from town to town where he has held sway, where he has destroyed people's lives, where he has them in bondage, where they are in darkness and sin and depression, and they're willing to, and they're in paganism and they're worshiping idols. I'm going to that darkness and I'm saying, Satan, get out. This is mine now. I'm plundering your house, driving out the darkness. Jesus says, I am doing that. By the way, that is the original gospel promise. 
Go back to the garden. We always have to go back to the garden. If you remember when we were there, that Jesus, uh, sorry, when we were there, uh, Satan was the one who, who deceived the woman, Eve, and that she fell into sin. Satan, in the form of a serpent, was behind the fall of man into sin. And so there was, during this, this time where, where, where God confronted them and they fell into sin and there was, there was punishment being given out, in the midst of that, in Genesis 3.15, we have the first gospel promise. Jesus, or God says, I will put enmity or hostility between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What this amounts to is that God promises, the first gospel promise, is that God is going to make war with the devil through the offspring of the woman. There there is somebody, specifically one man, who will descend from Eve, who one day will go to war with Satan and crush his head. But in doing so, he will be bruised, his heel will be bruised. He will be wounded in doing so as he was at the cross. Satan, having his head crushed, will no longer be able to deceive or to bite. And so the, the casting out of demons, Jesus coming out, casting out demons, raiding Satan's house, is evidence that Jesus is that offspring. He's that long-awaited son. He is the serpent crusher. He's got Satan's head under his foot, and he's about ready to stomp. And they're saying, you're with Satan. He says, you have no idea what you're talking about. You've missed it completely. He is the serpent crusher. He is the one bringing the good rule of his kingdom, and his kingdom is unstoppable. So scribes have it completely wrong, and so Jesus says, I I have to warn you, because what you're doing by accusing me of being in league with Satan is you're committing a terrible error. And we hear this, this idea of an eternal sin. They may have committed the unpardonable or the eternal sin. And, that, and that's, you've heard of that before, many of you, and that can be a great mystery. What does that mean? How is it people that people can blaspheme the Son? They can commit all kinds of sins and they can be forgiven, but they can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. What is this? Well, we don't have time for us to go great in depth, so I'll just try to define it quickly here. But anyone who confesses Jesus as Lord and Savior can be forgiven of any number of sins. And we all commit, before we come to Christ, any number of blasphemies. Even unbelief in itself is a sin. Yet all these can be forgiven when one is converted and comes to faith. Paul was formerly, the Apostle Paul was formerly a blasphemy of Christ, blasphemer of Christ. He was sending off Christians to be killed, martyred for their faith. And yet he became a believer in Christ and an apostle. So it's certainly possible. So why is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit so wrong? Why is this an eternal sin? Well, it's not just uttering the words, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Back in 2006, uh, some of you may remember this, there was something called the Blasphemy Challenge on YouTube. Does anybody remember that? This was um, back when the new atheists, Daniel Dennett and uh, a whole bunch of other guys, I... I'm, there was four guys who I, it was Sam Harris and a few others. They were called the New Atheists because they weren't just atheists, but they were ardently hostile against um, Christianity. They held a lot of sway at this time. Uh, they're almost nothing anymore. But they were encouraging young people to go on social media, to go on YouTube, and record themselves saying, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I deny the Holy Spirit. He was encouraging them to, to commit this unforgivable sin. Because they were so confident that God doesn't exist, this is all rubbish, that they were willing to risk it all by committing the so-called unpardonable sin. And thousands of people did it. It was even national news. So the question is, just by uttering the words, did they commit the eternal sin? Maybe. Maybe not. See, what we have here is... What, what Jesus is talking about is, is more than just simple unbelief. It's more than just doubting. It's more than even just resisting the Holy Spirit because people can resist the Holy Spirit for a while but then eventually become believers. But such a person who commits the sin in view here is doing something different. See, the scribes here understood who Christ was. They saw dramatic power at work. They saw the witness and testimony of the Holy Spirit at work, because Jesus was doing this through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. 
And they recognized the Holy Spirit of God was at work through Christ, so they could not deny who he was. And yet, with willful, malicious rejection, they were demonstrating their hardness of heart. That they would rather say that Satan is at work than believe and admit that Jesus is who he said he was. So this is a full-throated, hard-hearted, deliberate, intentional rejection of the Spirit's clear testimony to Christ out of spite and malice. I think one of the clearest pictures of this, of, of what sin is and what this looks like, is Jesus tells a parable and, uh, where these people are rejecting God and they are rejecting uh, the king's son. And they have this phrase that they say, we do not want this man to rule over us. And that's what's happening here. This isn't accidental. This isn't just ignorance. They know what they're doing. Rather, the truth of the matter was clear, and so they have this willful malice against God, against Christ. They love their position so much that even though they have the Spirit illuminating, they know what's going on, they say, I don't care. I hate Jesus. I reject this. I will deny the Holy Spirit's testimony. Here's the thing. If they are rejecting the Holy Spirit's testimony of Christ, there's nowhere else to go. Nothing else will convince them. There's no argument. There's no natural law. There's no natural light. There's no apologetic that's going to turn their minds around. They have rejected the clearest evidence there is of Christ, and they've done so in a blasphemous way. And so in this sense, the door to repentance is shut. Their, their conscience is scorched permanently. There remains for them no hope of salvation. They're basically demonstrating by this declaration they're cut off from grace. And it appears these scribes very well may have committed this sin. This is a real warning that needs to be heeded. To die in unbelief will result in eternal judgment, but we have this belief that even on someone's deathbed, that up to the last moment, salvation is possible if someone repents and believes. We know that because the thief on the cross did so. But there are some who can commit this eternal sin. They reject the Holy Spirit's work. They're so hard-hearted that they're closing that door even before death happens. So there's a real warning to be heeded there. And yet, if you are concerned, some of you hear that, you're like, oh, if I committed that, and the comfort should be, if you are actually worried about this, then it probably doesn't apply to you. If you're, if you're, if you're concerned about the state of your soul, repent and believe. But if you're not concerned, you may be in danger. I want to kind of end our time today because there's a line in this text that I passed over that I want to look at again, and it's verse 28. Because it is very, very sweet. Jesus says, Truly say to you, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. There's actually great hope there if you pay attention to the first part that all sins, there are great sins that we can commit and each and every one of them can be covered by the blood of Christ. Some of the sins you have committed and I have committed are terrible, are great, are deadly, are dark. You know, we have, we have sins in our own imagination that we think aren't that bad. I remember when I was seven years old, I went to like a, a hardware store and I asked my mom for like a pack of gum and she didn't want to give it to me, so I took it. You know, and of course, in the, and she found out when we got to the uh, parking lot and we had to go back and give it back. That's, that's a sin. But we consider that, that's not on the same level as, as we talked about earlier, child trafficking, right? They're both sins. But some of us have sins that we've committed in our past or we're even wrestling with now that we feel like are so bad, are so dreadful, are so awful, so scandalous that even Christ can't forgive us. The scandal of the gospel is that Christ died for even the worst sins that can be imagined. That there is no sin greater than the blood, that Christ's blood cannot cover it. So yes, that does cover gossip and lying and stealing a 99-cent pack of gum, but it also covers murder and rape and child molestation and gross sexual conduct and witchcraft and idolatry and atheism and prostitution and selling drugs and addiction and adultery and everything else. And for some of you, that actually angers you because you're on the other side of that. You've been abused. You've been hurt by someone else, and you can't forgive that person. Because it's hard, because those sins are damnable. It's not a small thing. You've been hurt deeply, and you, you think they rightly deserve hell for such things. And they do. The gospel's not unjust, though. It's not just saying, well, 
I'll just let it go. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is justice paid out, but on Christ's head. Every sin committed by people, however grievous, will be paid, either by the person who committed it or by Christ. No sin goes unpunished. There's no injustice in God's kingdom. But some of you need to hear this because there are serious sins in your own life, in your past, and you're wrestling with. And for some of you, that's what's breaking the deal from you coming to Christ right now. I can't come to Christ because I've got this thing. I can't be a good man, a godly man, a religious man, or a woman because I've got this thing in my past that bars my entry. Or maybe you're a Christian and you've got this thing that's going on in your life and there's a distance between you and God because you're like, I've got to clean this up first, then I'll, then, I'll, then I'll be better. No. Guys, the gospel is not that God accepts you. The gospel is that God accepts Christ on your behalf. Because you are not good enough, and neither am I. And if, you, and if that is what we're trusting in, you're going to be sorely disappointed. It's that Christ is sufficient. That Christ, when he says, it is finished, God looks down and says, amen. And that your sins are poured out, the wrath your sins and mine deserve are poured out on Christ. And he says, now I accept you on behalf of Christ, and I want you to be with me. That's the good news. And so your sin is crucified with Christ. And Romans 8, 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are free. Go and sin no more. God is your Father. He loves you. He does not hate you. And he has chosen you to be with him, not based on yourself, but according to his own sovereign will and good pleasure. And so he will not change his mind about you. You are clean before God because Christ has made you so. So walk in faith. There's no sin too dark for Christ's blood to cover. And so when you go to God, plead the blood. You know, you need to, you need to, in the morning when you go, I feel like the first thing you need to do is apologize, right? God, I'm sorry. Yes, do so. That's called repentance. But say, God, I don't deserve to be here today. But I thank you for the blood of Christ, which is powerful to make me clean. And God says, amen. Come, my son, my daughter. Worship team, you can go ahead and come up. We're not going to cover verses 31 and 35 today because we went a little long. But I'll encourage you that Christ is a powerful Savior, that he drives out the darkness of our sin and even the power of Satan in our lives. So trust in him, come to him, no matter how great your sin is, the power of Christ is greater. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you now. I ask for your blessing. We thank you, God that you are a great and powerful Savior, that your kingdom endures forever, that you are righteous and good, and that you are faithful and true. And God, that you love us. Lord, you love us so much that you gave your Son to bring us new life. Lord, not just give us a better life, Lord, but eternal life with Christ, with you. Help us, Lord, to know you, to seek you, to trust you, to walk with you daily as disciples. We ask this in Jesus' name.